Anywhere in Hebrews, we're going to do the whole book tonight. First thing, I just want you to know that we're staying ahead of this, uh, the coronavirus, whatever it's called, COVID-19. We don't want to have any kind of a cavalier attitude toward this. And so we're going to be following, our church will be following all the recommendations of the government and the CDC. And in fact, I would recommend you look at the Center for Disease Control. Uh, they have a website or whatever and follow the recommendations. And even if that comes to just this is just a heads up, may not go anywhere, but we may and we will follow all recommendations, including not meeting if we have to not meet. But even then, I think I'll come in here to an empty house and do some teaching and make sure that we still have it online or whatever. So, But just keep it all in prayer, and we're praying, too, that these things always have a limit, and we can actually pray effectively that God even makes the limit more limited. And that's my prayer. My prayer, of course, is for our entire assembly and families but also in general for this, uh, as Pastor Brown rightly prayed a couple of weeks ago, starting that he limits it. it. Reminds me of when David was asked by the Lord, he took a census and God didn't want him to. And so the Lord said, what do you want, a plague or an invasion? And David said, well, I'll take the plague because at least then you're in control of limiting it because when people invade, people are worse, you know, they have no mercy. And the David had a vision, and an angel was standing in a threshing floor, and he called for an end of, there was a plague, 70,000 people died as a result of the plague, but it stopped. And so there is a real effective way we can pray for God to extend his mercy, and certainly undeserving grace toward the population of this world today. Undeserving grace. We're not asking for it because we deserve it and because we don't deserve any kind of discipline or punishment. We're asking for it purely out of his mercy. Mercy and undeserved grace. So I just want you to know that we're keeping just a step or two ahead of this. So let's take a couple moments. Father, we thank you for the most important thing, and may this always be the most important thing, the one thing needful for this assembly. And may you grant me the mercy to always have this before us, especially this epistle to the Hebrews, which is a demonstration of your final word. You've spoken finally, definitively in your son. You've spoken once and for all in his once and for all sacrifice. And may we be among those who approach the throne of grace and go on to be true subjects and authentic people as we go on to maturity and not to join the millions of teeming drifters that this world is already overpopulated with. So we pray that you'll allow insight and the light from the word to stop the progress of a rolling blackout 
of the soul that's happening even among Christendom. So we pray that you'll focus our attention in such a way that we do indeed see Jesus through these teachings. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First, I want to do an intro on for Ash Wednesday. And it's Hebrews 9.13. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled with water cleanse to the ceremonial purification of the worshiper, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purify your conscience to serve a living God. Amen. That's Ash Wednesday. Now we'll get to Hebrews. We see Jesus. Hebrews is in the genre, literary genre, of a homily or a sermon. And it's pastoral intent. The pastoral intent of the author is easily and often recognizable throughout this letter and sermon. Where there is exhortation, it's more often than not a co-exhortation with the writer including himself. How about this? We must therefore pay even more attention. He doesn't say pay more attention. He says we must pay even more attention. Hebrews 2.1. And I am going to start quoting verses. I, you can thank John Durst for that. He said, I, every time I took notes, my notes were taking the verses down that you gave. Now you're not doing it. And it's like confusing. So I am going to do it. And I understand that. So thank John for it. Next time you see him, load him up with your jewelry, your earrings, give him money, presents, food. Just don't genuflect. He won't like that. But we must therefore pay even more attention. Hebrews 2.1. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation two three let us approach the throne of grace with bold confidence four sixteen let us go on to maturity six one let us consider how to encourage each other in order to promote love and good works, 1024. Let us have and hold on to grace that by it we may serve God. To Theo, God. T O T H E O. To Theo, that we may serve God acceptably. We, with modesty, and reverence, twelve twenty-eight. Therefore, let us go out to Christ outside the camp, bearing His reproach, thirteen thirteen. In all seven of these fragments, there's an appeal to human action. Pay attention. Don't be neglectful. Approach the throne of grace. Go on to maturity, which includes human authenticity. Encourage one another to love. 
hold on to grace, go out to Christ. In these, we detect the five transcendent precepts made famous by Lonergan. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, be in love. And notice how these co-exhortations are distributed throughout the entire letter, which is a a sermon within an epistle. Notice this. They are distributed from 2-1 all the way to 13-13. And I selected these seven pretty much by memory off the top of my head. But then I immediately noticed their distribution, their wide distribution throughout. And because there's enough of a recurrent theme of pastoral intent there and paranesis, as it's called, which is a word we should learn, P-A-R-A-E-N-E-S-I-S. That means exhortation. Paranesis means an impartation of incentive, both negative and positive, as opposed to exposition or teaching or even theology. And so... I selected these seven by memory, but their distribution shows that there's enough of a recurrent theme of pastoral paranesis here to identify the genre of Hebrews as homily or sermon. As I view my history as a pastor teacher, I'm very grateful for the first affiliation, Greater Grace World Outreach under Dr. Carl Stevens, where I learned homiletics, how to preach, how to teach, how to deliver and be bold and confident in the pulpit. I learned it there under the Spirit's direction. I thank God also after that with my affiliation with R.B. Theme Jr. and learning the art of exegesis and uh, the science of very careful exegesis of the Scripture. Both are necessary in the pastoral gift. And so we have homily or sermon. All of the human action that's urged by this writer is also urged by the Holy Spirit. In fact, at one with the Holy Spirit and at once with the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Grace. Right in the middle of an extended exhortation in Hebrews 10, namely verse 29, he is called the spirit of grace. This kind of goes back to Hebrews, or rather to Zechariah 12, where God promises that he will pour out a spirit of grace and supplications on Israel, a spirit of grace and supplications, which means the spirit of grace gives us the grace to pray effectively also. So the Holy Spirit figures prominently in Hebrews. Moreover, it is the Holy Spirit, as he's called in 3, 7, and 8, who says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the days of testing in the wilderness. That's in the days when the people of God wandering through the wilderness tested God and thousands of them fell as corpses in the wilderness. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 and following. Being consistently attentive to the Holy Spirit leads Christians 
to becoming authentic acting subjects. Authentic acting subjects rather than remaining among the teeming mass of drifters in the world. Going on to maturity means becoming more and more of an acting, thinking, and willing subject in Christ. And more and more, a person in whom Christ lives as a divine and human subject. It is the Christian being fully formed in Christ and Christ being fully formed in the Christian. Let us go on to maturity. The writer is as much a theologian as he is a pastor. Because of this, Hebrews is a balanced interaction of exposition and exhortation of God's action with human action. God's action is strongly stressed in the opening words of this epistle and we're struck, at least I was, struck immediately with his first two actions being speech acts, acts of speaking. God spoke on many occasions and in many ways by the prophets to the ancestors long ago, it says. The many ways that God spoke to the fathers included not only words but actions. What if I were to lie on one side on this floor for a year of preaching? Every time I preached, I'd lie on one side looking that way and holding the microphone. And what if for another year, I lay on the other side looking that way with the microphone? That's what Ezekiel did. That's how God spoke to the people through Ezekiel, not just through what he said, but through what he did. When he told Hosea to go buy a prostitute off the block, off the slave block, marry her and have children and name the children after names that are very important to Israel's upcoming prophetic history. God was speaking in many ways, in a different way, through a prophet, not only through speech, but through speech acts. When he told Isaiah for, to walk around unshod and without clothes for a year, well, I might think about disobeying that one. I don't know, but uh, he was showing something, perhaps the nakedness of Israel, perhaps the moral nakedness. He was speaking in various ways by the prophets. It's fascinating just to see prophets were weird people. If you threw a prophet in the mix today, and I think God just might do that from time to time, you threw a prophet in the mix of people today, they would be just not understood at all. They'd be maligned continually. They'd be, there'd be Christians mostly up in arms all the time about them, about their language and their habits and what they do and how they say things. And, you know, it's not like dear old Dr. So-and-so or Minister So-and-so or the guy with the high hat and scepter. It's a prophet, a little bit strange. But God spoke on many occasions and in many ways by the prophets to the ancestors long ago. The many ways that God spoke to the fathers included not only words but actions by the prophets that were directed by God. So when he speaks finally in his son, He's not just speaking with words. 
He's speaking in a crucified Messiah about his intense philanthropy and love for mankind in an act, in an event, in a series of events beginning with incarnation and a life lived of obedience in the days of his flesh, culminating with obedience to the death of the cross, crucifixion, death, tasting death for every person by the grace of God. That's how God speaks and has spoken finally in a son. And so in these last days, ho theos, God, ho theos, God, this is theology, has spoken in a son. We know from DLT of God speaking eternally. He spoke eternally. For in John 1.1, in the beginning was always the word. And when we speak of the word, we speak of something being spoken. So for the word to be, the word had to have been spoken. The word was with God. And the word eternally existed as God. The eternal son of God is the eternal word of God. And so by an imperfect analogy, which is all that we can do in theology, the father eternally begets a son out of his own eternal substance and reality. By another imperfect analogy, the father eternally speaks an eternal word. The word and the son are one. But what does it mean that God spoke definitively in a son in these last days? The answer is also found in John's gospel. For in John eight twenty eight, Jesus spoke to those who intended to kill him. And he said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. It is in Jesus lifted up, Jesus crucified, in whom God spoke definitively, conclusively, finally, eschatologically. His lifting up was also his exaltation, though. John gets this. John, the writer of the gospel, who was not John Zebedee, the apostle, but in my firm conviction, he was someone outside the circle of the 12, someone closer to the Lord than the 12, someone who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he understood that his lifting up when he was hoisted into the air by men on a cross. He was being exalted by God. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross by the action of men was an action finished by the action of God who lifted him up to the highest height of heaven and bid the son to sit at his right hand. Psalm 1101 to sit at the right of the majesty on high. And so we see Jesus 
crowned. First with a crown of thorns. And we see the same Jesus crowned with glory and honor. After having tasted death for every person by the grace of God. 2.9 Including, he tasted death, including for the very men who hoisted him in the air on a Roman cross. As the scripture says in John 19.37, alluding to Zechariah 12.10, they will look on the one they pierced. And alluding to the same verse in Zechariah, Revelation 1.7 says, every eye will see him, even the eyes of those who impaled him. God has spoken definitively and with finality in his crucified and exalted son. God is not too unlike Paul, who determined to communicate nothing but Jesus Christ and him having been crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. God who speaks the word eternally and who eternally generates his son has specifically spoken in his incarnate son by revealing himself in Jesus crucified and tasting death. This was the self-revelation of the father in Jesus. For if you've seen me, you've seen the father, says Jesus. He tasted death, the wages of sin, for all of humanity. For the word became flesh and the son became sin. That we would be made the righteousness of God in him. John 1 2 Corinthians 5 21. The self revelation of the father in the son. And this is where we're reaching some new insights. The self-revelation of the Father in the Son. God has spoken in his Son. The self-revelation of the Father in the Son reached a peak in Jesus and him crucified. To see him is to see the Father. It is to see God who is love in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16. There are what we call the words of Jesus. Some Bibles used to put them in red. Red were the words of Jesus. They're recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel. You see a few of those sayings scattered in Acts and the epistles of the New Testament. But then there is the word of the Father, which is his son, Jesus. God who spoke many times and in many ways long ago in the prophets to the fathers has spoken finally and fully to us in a son in these last days. In Jesus and in him crucified, God is self-revealed. Moltmann wrote this, and it was worth plowing through the whole book 
called The Spirit of Hope, just to get to this one quote. Moltmann, 2019. God's revelation is also God's self-dedication. Let that be stamped on your soul. He goes on to say, and dedication can only be rendered completely or not at all, but certainly not partially. Otherwise, the term would be inadmissible. Self-revelation and self-dedication are actions of love. Love can only be ascribed to a subject, not a substance. Now, we're probably going to return to this quotable quote, but for now, consider that God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ and him crucified is also God's total self-dedication to you, to us, to humanity. God's self-revelation is God's self-dedication to humanity. Come on down here and dedicate yourself to God. Now, listen first about what God has done in dedicating himself to you. Totally, not partially, completely in his son. So it's a stunning revelation of God's philanthropy. His love specifically for humanity. The word philanthropy or philanthropia is found in Titus 3, 4 and a couple other places in the scripture. I like the word because it's specifically God's love for human beings. As 1 Timothy 4.10 says, he is the savior of all humankind, especially of those who believe. Now, God can talk like this, like he does through a pastor in Hebrews, to that category of people who believe. And it's to those, that category of especially those who believe that Hebrews is directed. Now let's go back to Hebrews 1.1. Hebrews 1.1. In many parts and in various ways. Long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers in the prophets, in these last days has spoken definitively to us in a son. Now, after the declaration, God spoke to us in a son. There are two verbs, verbs of action, that also describe God's actions. First, he appointed his son to be heir or inheritor of all things. He said that first. He said the last thing first. When the son inherits everything, he said the first thing last. He, by the son... He made the universe. It doesn't say God made the universe. It doesn't just say God made the universe. He did. That's the action of God. 
you couldn't have that action attributed to you. It's never going to be said. I know it's going to hurt your feelings. But it will never be said correctly that Larry made the universe. Sorry, Larry. Now, it's, I know that, Judy, I know that probably hurt his ego, didn't it? But that's... <laughs> okay. God made the universe. It doesn't say that. It says, through whom? That is the Son, God made the universe. Now, human actions that we started with tonight, like approaching the throne of grace, holding on to grace, they're compared with divine actions like appointing the Son as heir of all things and creating the universe by the Son. The actions of God are the heart of the gospel just as the self-dedication of God to mankind is the heart of the gospel. And the giving of his son was the giving of himself. And the revelation of the son is the revelation of the father. So, the actions of God in his son are the epicenter of the very good news which we call the gospel. Romans 1.1 compared with, Rome, with Hebrews 4.6, where we have the word gospel. Only God, who created the universe in and by his Son, effects so great a salvation. So when you're dealing with so great salvation, you're dealing with an action of God, just as you're dealing with an action of God in the appointment of the Son to be heir of all things and in the creation of the universe by the Son. These are attributed to God. So salvation is called so great salvation in Hebrews 2, 3, which we should not neglect is attributed to God. God did so in his son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. 2 Corinthians 5.19. Hebrews 1, then again, look at it again. We'll extend it a little bit. This is actually one complex sentence that goes all the way through, not verse 3, but 4, verse 4, where he gets into the greater, the superiority of the Son over angels. In many parts and in various ways long ago, God, who spoke provisionally to the fathers and the prophets in these last days, has spoken definitively to us in a Son, whom he appointed heir, whom he has appointed heir, H-E-I-R, of all things, through whom he has made the universe. Please notice that God has appointed this son as heir of all things. The Greek phrase that I forgot to begin with is kleronomon panton. Kleronomon or kleronomon panton. Kleronomon, heir, panton. Everything. And so, all things is a word that I hope you're familiar with if you've been around here for a little while. Pantone. P-A-N-T omega O-N. Pantone. Remember that? Accent here. 
Now, the, the 27th edition of Nestle Allen, now I, I do it this way, so you know where I, my Greek text I use is NA27, Nestle Allen, 27th edition. One of the wonderful commentaries I'm doing now, he had NA26, so there's been one since Attridge wrote his magisterial commentary on Hebrews, just magnificent. I'm reading that, I read that for a while, then I pick up Cosman's The Wandering People of God for a while. Then I put that down. Then I pick up the Coasters, 2007 or 8. And I've already finished the Beneficent Christology of, Kurt, of Mc, uh, Kevin McRudin. So I'm, I'm reading all these things at once, and I just do it randomly. That's why I'm so random up here. I just do... Okay, I'm, I'm going to just put that away. Right in the middle of a paragraph, I'll just stuck that over there and take this one and do this and do it all day long, all day long. Once in a while, I'll look up just to see the stock tanking, you know, in a, on mute TV screen. So I can just realize, well, I can never retire now. There goes my pension. <laughs> now let me go back to Hebrews. And so here we go. So um, no big deal. So I'm not going to get beat up by Mark O'Donnell because he said he would beat me up if I retired. So, But the thing is, Mark, if I retire, you're not going to find me. Okay, I'm only kidding. So let's look at this. The 27th edition of the Nestle Allen Greek text, which I regard as pretty much the best Greek translation available. Pantone is the last word in the Bible. And it's... Because Revelation twenty two twenty one, last verse in the Bible says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Pantone. Seems like that anticipates the Father making the Son heir of all things. The first words in the Greek text of the Bible are N R K. We've seen that before. N E N R K. N R K A R C H E. Soft breathing, long E, accent there. So, RK is a word for Christ, as Colossians 1.18 says. So, the first verse in the Bible, and we've looked at this already, but I'm repeating it because of its importance. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. NRK, God, in Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. Or we could say, by Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. Why am I saying that? Because it's not too unlike what Hebrews 1-2 says. By the Son, God made the universe. But he also says that God appointed the Son to be heir of all things. So this pastor theologian, pastor-theologian, who wrote Hebrews has summed up the whole Bible by referring to the protology of creation. Creation is a segment, creation deals with a segment of theology, which we call protology, P-R-O-T-O, from the word protos and logos. Protology, very simple, protos plus logos, the word about the beginning. And then there's eschatology, which is the word about the end things, the final things, in Jesus Christ, protology and eschatology are one in Christology, which I put as just the letter chi 
in my notes, circled. Protology and eschatology are one in Christ because he said, I am the beginning and the end in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, for example. So by Christ, God made the universe. So this pastor theologian who wrote Hebrews has summed up the whole Bible by referring to the protology of creation by God through the son and the eschatology of the inheritance of all things by the son. Quite brilliant. Protology, the study of the first things, and eschatology, the study of the last things, come together in Christology, the word or the study of Christ, the eternal Son and the eternal Word of God. In him, the last is first and the first is last because he is the first and the last. He arche kai ta telos. Revelation 22:13. Now, we're advancing. That the Son is heir of all things by God the Father's appointment is because of the Father's great love for his only eternally begotten Son. John 3.35 comes back into play, and I have a photographic thinking memory of doing this verse in John 3.35. The Father loves the Son, it says, and has given all things, panta, like pantone, into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things, panta, into Sounds just like the Father has appointed him to be heir of all things. It doesn't differ, those two declarations. But John just adds the essential fact of the Father's love for the Son. More than that, in Jesus' prayer to the Father in the shadow of the cross in John 17, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. You get that? gave him authority over all flesh so that he could give eternal life to all that he had given him. All that he had given him is all flesh. So the son gives it. Uh, never mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Don't you? The mystery that we studied, we just recently completed a short study called the doctrine of the mystery. Remember the mystery of God's will. We learned is that what all things tapanta be re capitulated in Christ Ephesians 1 9 and 10 so that Hebrews opens with the son being appointed by the father as the heir of all things shows a splendid unity of thought between Paul and this pastoral author albeit a different style and perspective and genre Hebrews is the word unique is tossed around a lot today. Hebrews is unique, even among the books of the New Testament, of all documents. That Hebrews opens with the Son being appointed by the Father as the heir of all things shows a splendid unity between this writer and Paul. And there is also a notable oneness of concept with the author of the gospel according to John. Again, this goes way back to John, who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, a man who was quite well acquainted with the Levitical priesthood. 
and may have even been among the Levitical priests and the office of the Aaronic high priest. So he writes John with that knowledge. The beloved disciple is rarely or if ever considered as a candidate for the authorship of Hebrews, but he belongs in the list of candidates primarily because he is traditionally assumed to be John the Apostle, John Zebedee. That's why he's ruled out. But he isn't John Zebedee. He's one called the beloved disciple. He's outside the circle of the so-called 12. He's not John the Apostle. And I think he wrote Revelation too. Recent evidence, therefore, especially that put forward by Richard Bauckham, and I do remember who gave me the book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Tony, many years ago. Bauckham has shown otherwise, that it's not, in other words, that it is not John Zebedee. Moreover, it's been shown that this person was, in fact, an ideal witness and even closer to Jesus than the so-called 12. Now, my friend and our church's friend, Paula Roberts, recently reminded me of this in a letter of the possibility of Johannine authorship of Hebrews. So, hi, Paula. Good point. It certainly has a degree of plausibility equal to that of other candidates, equal to that of Apollos and Barnabas, Luke. Peter, of all the books of the Bible, First Peter has more affinity with Hebrews than any other book. It's worth a study in itself. All the features there. But... All things, pantone, also appears prominently in the phrase, the restoration of all things, should remember this, apokatastasios, pantone, which is the subject matter of God's voice in all the prophets. God spoke in all the prophets from time immemorial, immemorial about the apokatastasis, pantone being the subject matter then of God in all the prophets, according to Peter in Acts 3.21. He calls it these times of universal restoration, times plural, because he's saying that when this happens, all times or all epochs of history, all eras, generations will become simultaneous and all peoples will be contemporaries because of resurrection. And that's when Jesus whom heaven retains for the time being in Acts 3, 19 and 21 to 21 is sent back to earth by the father. The father says, go back to the earth, son, summarize all time, summarize all people, raise all the dead, restore everything right now. Son says, I've been waiting to do this, father. Thank you for placing all of my enemies under my feet and Let's get this going. And I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, that's a valid prayer of the church, incidentally. It's one that you pray more fervently when you're hurting, I noticed, than when you're prospering. So the times of this universal restoration, that is when all times become simultaneous, is when God sends Christ, that is Jesus. And I love the way his name is used so affectionately and respectfully. When he sends Christ, that is Jesus, back to earth, whom heavenly current, heaven currently retains. 
And speaking of Peter, again, the first epistle has very much in common with Hebrews. Now, the reason I'm translating the phrase that reads, through whom he made the ages, you might be, if you have a Greek text, you're saying, how can you say through whom he made the universe? And it says through whom he made tus eonos, the, the ages, literally. Well, that's because I prefer through whom he made the universe because for one thing, Joseph Thayer observed with specific reference to Hebrews 1-2 that the plural hoi eones by metonymy of the container for the contained denotes the worlds or the universe or the aggregate of things contained in time. In other words, it's a figure of speech. The ages is where the container is used for the contained. The ages are speaking of what they're contained in is the universe. So this is a declaration of the universe being created by the Father in the Son. The universe in all of its times, of course. So again, once again, Joseph Thayer, I was first brought to the attention of this by A.T. Robertson in his book, Word Studies in the Greek New Testament. Then I looked it up for myself, and he in fact says that this phrase, hoi eonos, which is the ages, quote, by metonymy of the container for the contain, denotes the universe, that is the aggregate of things contained in time. So with the creation of the universe by God in the Son, and the inheritance of all by the same Son, we have both protology and eschatology as Christology. And we get a glimpse, at least, at the so great salvation that it would be tragic for us to neglect. It would be tragic if we were to neglect what we've been learning in the past few years here through many dangerous toils and snares. It would be tragic if we forgot it, if we just blew off listening to the word or assembling ourselves together for the purpose of encouragement or reminding ourselves of it daily. We would forget, yeah, believe me, you'd forget it. And the more we forget the word, the more we recede back into inauthenticity as people. And we accept the inauthentic. We accept political philosophies like our nation is ready to do, to accept a political philosophy which, when it is first introduced, will cause ecstasy among the peoples and will turn to great misery. Some of the best things I've ever known in my life started out with hardness and trial and difficulty and grinding and grueling and ended up being the best things in my life. Some of the worst things that can ever happen to us are things that begin with an ecstatic beginning, a deceptive beginning, and end in disaster. If you need maybe... A little glimpse of what I mean, a little illustration. Think of a hangover. Or think of that moment of glorious pleasure that strapped you with someone you hate for the rest of your life. What did that? That happens to people. So. Or the guy that said, tried to get me 
all upset because he loved to smoke dope all the time. And he says, of course, you've never done that. And I said, I did that more than you ever have. And I stopped and I said to him, one of the reasons I stopped is because people that do it all the time turn into effeminate fops and whiners and sissies. Just did that because he was a manly guy. And he goes, he says, well, I don't do it that often. (laughs) Welcome to my Bible school, punk. So that was a wonderful moment. We, I think we sort of, no, we didn't. I was going to say we became friends. No, we didn't. So at this point, I want to throw in what I call my widow's might. When sometimes I get a thought on top of all this stuff, and I call it my wi- the widow's might, the little bit I throw into the public collection basket. I want to put my widow's might into the collection basket. And I want to say that it seems to me that God desires to have a breed of pastors coming up who are pastor theologians who, like the author of Hebrews, can lead from the front by teaching theologically, exegeting and expounding the scriptures, not just doing pep talks to a megachurch, but clearly exegeting and expounding the scriptures by clearly explaining them while also imparting momentum to their hearers so that they can go on to spiritual maturity together. The need for such pastor theologians is far greater than the need for more politicians, for example. Though the need for statesmen, not politicians, statesmen and stateswomen is always great as is the need for plumbers and technicians, teachers and professors, soldiers and sailors, doctors and nurses. But God, through the action of his Son and by the distribution of the Spirit of grace, has given gifts, including that of pastors who teach, so that the saints can be equipped for the work of service. And so that the church in the world can carry on the service of the servant of Yahweh, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Many being all of humankind. May God raise up such pastor theologians. Because the fields are ripe for harvest. And because a worldwide drift and a creeping blackout of the light of truth threatens to carry away more and more believers in Jesus Christ. Only by keeping the word will believers be brought to the peak dynamic state of being in love with God and with all of humanity and to be held there in that peak dynamic state. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude 21 shows how insecure that peak dynamic state is and how precarious a position it is. 
That's why there's such an urgency to go on, to progress, to go forward, to keep moving. Only believers in this peak state are truly empowered to build up the body of Christ and add to its numbers as well as to its stature. In that state of being in love, to use Bernard Lonergan's words, and one of the best articles I've ever seen was chapter 17 of volume 17 of the collected works of Bernard Lonergan. That's where I got the initial thought for drifting, the doctrine of drifting. But he said this in, about the state of being in love. He said, one has got beyond mere selfishness that is in this state. One has got beyond mere selfishness. One has become a principle of benevolence and beneficence. He uses the word principle in the old-fashioned Aquinine sense and the Aristotelian sense of an originator of or a source of benevolence and beneficence. Then he says, one has to become capable of genuine collaboration and of true love. In the measure that self-transcendence in the field of action characterizes the members of a society, In that measure, their world not only is constructed by imagination and intelligence, mediated by words and meaning, based by and large on belief, it is also a world motivated and regulated not by self-seeking, but by values, not by what is apparently good, but by what is truly good. This is what it means to me to go on to spiritual maturity. We get beyond mere selfishness. We become a principle of benevolence and beneficence. We become capable of genuine collaboration and true love. Seeing Jesus, therefore, as a merciful and faithful high priest... Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. We are seeing the prime human and divine principle of benevolence and beneficence. Looking into his face with unveiled faces, we who are his household of priests, Hebrews 10, 21, are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But this transformation is stalled if we aren't continually looking. This is where divinely aided human action comes in and where divine transformation occurs, making us into the Lord's image, making us agents of benevolence, and beneficence, making us truly human subjects whose willing is God in us willing, whose doing is God in us doing.
Philippians 2.13, going way back to Philippians. We have not yet attained to the place and to the state where this is always the case. Not by any means. But we press on. We go on to completion. Hebrews 6 1 compared with Philippians 3.14. Thank you, Father. I see where you're taking us. I see where this unique homily within an extraordinary epistle, such a divine balance of exposition and co-exhortation. I see what you're doing in this for a 21st century audience for us right here, right now. The things I want to pray for, I can't articulate at this moment. And so I pray that you'll make me a vessel of the groanings of the Holy Spirit who makes intercession for us with words that cannot be uttered. I ask you to utter through me and through us and through each one of us as we approach the throne of grace together. Prayers that can't be uttered because they speak of things too great, too high, too glorious, too wonderful. And as we pray these, we think of loved ones. We think of those with whom we have been temporarily estranged. We think of those who are estranged to us. We think of those whom we love, whom we desire so deeply would be looking unto Jesus. We think of our nation. We think of our leaders. We think of our president. We think of the great divide and division between leaders. We think of upcoming health and natural disasters and their possibility and the possibility of them being forestalled and stopped and stalled. We think of the mass shootings, the ressentiment that motivates so many. We think of the young people whom we desperately ache would know this truth are being dissuaded from it by the very institutions that are intended to educate and illuminate and edify. All these things come into our mind even now. And we don't know how to pray as we ought to. But we do know how to ask you to make articulation through us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Make us vessels of this intercessory prayer at all times, whether we're aware of it or not, for we ask it in Christ's name.